Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw and I am really excited. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while. I've been trying to track this fabulous guest down and finally got her to come on the show. I have with me Dr. Mimi Wynn. Dr. Wynn is a professor and the vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she is a world expert on anesthesia for thoracic surgery. And so we're going to talk today about that and specifically about anesthesia for thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysm repair. And I'm really excited to learn a lot from her. Dr. Wynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So let's start, but just tell the audience a little bit about you. How did you get interested in the specific area of clinical anesthesiology that you do? And how did you get there to the, to the part of your career where you are now? Well, that's kind of a long path. <laughs> um, after fellowship, uh, my husband, who is a vascular surgeon, was recruited to University of Wisconsin to start a complex aortic surgery program. And I was a cardiac, am a cardiac anesthesiologist. Um, he had trained with Dr. Stanley Crawford in Houston, who was really the first surgeon to do thoracoabdominal aortic surgery. And I had spent some time there um, when he was a fellow, amazed by what they were doing. However, um, there that was the beginning of the surgery, and the outcomes were not good in terms of spinal cord injury. <clears throat> so... When we came back here, initially I was just doing cardiac anesthesia. Um, however, having had that experience, I was in a good position to take an interest in thoracoabdominal aortic surgery and anesthesia for that. And we quickly realized, and by quickly, I would say over the first year or so, that unless we improved the outcomes uh, by reducing paralysis, we couldn't continue to do this because it was such a devastating complication. And I felt we lived with these patients forever until they died. Um, so we began to invest energy um, into that endeavor. And that's where it began. <clears throat> I would say that um, over the years, I've done more cardiac at some times, more vascular at other times. I was fortunate to have an absolutely wonderful uh, group of surgeons and anesthesiologists in the cardiac group to work with. Um, and also the vascular surgeons, so that my own colleagues in anesthesiology 
became facile with what we were doing as well. And I think we worked as a team uh, to improve these outcomes over the next 20 years, really. Oh, that's great. And so at your place, do you do cardiac anesthesiologists obviously do the cardiac cases? Do they also do all of the thoracic uh, and vascular cases or are those kind of spread out? No, we do almost all of the vascular and thoracic cases here. Our division is actually cardiothoracic and vascular. Okay. Yeah. We have people within the division that focus more on one thing than another. However, we try to standardize our management as much as possible because when you're dealing with very complex things that have a limited volume, it's helpful to improve outcomes by uh, learning from what you've done. So there has to be a certain amount of consistency. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, well, let's start at the kind of very basic level. When we say a TAAA, what does that mean? That means an aneurysm that begins in the descending thoracic aorta. So it's at the subclavian or distal arch and may extend down to below the renal arteries. And these aneurysms are classified according to their extent. Some may end before the visceral segment, others may end after the renal arteries, and then there are intermediate ones. And obviously the risk of spinal cord injury is greater in the more extensive aneurysms. Okay. So these are aneurysms that start in the thorax, go down to the uh, abdomen and, and beyond, and they or, and or beyond. And as you said, the kind of larger and the further they extend, potentially the more high risk they are. Precisely. And so how do we know when a patient who has a, an aneurysm of this kind needs surgical repair as opposed to, let's say, medical management? Well, we follow these patients for a while, usually, um, because... We don't generally operate on them until the aneurysms are greater than five centimeters. And that's because at that point, the risk of rupture begins to exceed in our patients the risk of the surgery. Okay. And so, sorry, say that again. Well, it begins to exceed the risk of serious and life-altering complications. Gotcha. So... When we think about these pa the patient population that has these aneurysms, some number will never need surgery. They'll be able to, they'll stay at four centimeters or four and a half and, and never go. Is that true? And then some will progress? Yes, that's generally true. Okay. Though most, most of them do progress if they live long enough. Okay. So then it becomes a matter of deciding when the intervention should happen. And the, the medical management of these patients is blood pressure control, um, smoking cessation. Smoking cessation. Okay, great. So some probably large percent over time of these patients will go on to cross that five centimeter threshold and then will need to be evaluated for surgery. So when we're thinking about the different options for surgery, am I right that there's open repair and there's endovascular repair? That's exactly right. And the decision for that is made based on the anatomy <clears throat> of the aneurysm because open surgery obviously has higher risk. However, endovascular repair requires 
favorable anatomy in terms of landing zones, visceral segment. And then there's a group of patients that can be managed uh, with a hybrid repair. In other words, the anatomy is favorable for part of the aneurysm to be repaired endovascularly, and the rest of it then can be repaired open, but less extensive, so that reduces risk. Okay. And an endovascular, open repair is, is pretty clear. They go in there and they're going to, um, now, actually, I should say, I, I said it was very clear, and then I realized maybe it's not. When when they go in, when the surgeons go in in an open repair, are they resecting part of the aorta and replacing it completely with a uh, with a synthetic graft, or are they doing something else? Well, they're uh, sewing the graft within the aneurysm. So they open the aneurysm, sew it within the aneurysm, excluding all parts of the aneurysmal aorta, and then attaching the visceral vessels, if it involves the visceral segment, and then close the aorta over the graft. So the, okay. yes, they are, they are using um, a graft. <clears throat> okay, but it's not like taking a pipe that has a hole in it, cutting out the middle part of the pipe and replacing it with a new pipe. They're actually putting a graft inside the aorta and then closing exactly. the aorta around it. Right. Okay. And, and they have to re- reattach then any of the visceral vessels that are involved in the aneurysmal aorta. Yep. Okay. Because it's obviously important that those be able to still get blood flow um, after this procedure is over. Precisely. And, you know, some uh, centers do open repair with left heart bypass or even circulatory arrest. Uh, at our center, we only reserve circulatory arrest for aneurysms that are so far into the aortic arch, uh, though they can't be clamped. And okay. we do other uh, aneurysms with a clamp and sew technique. And, and this is largely related to who is doing the aneurysm. If a cardiac surgeon is doing it, they tend always to use left heart bypass, whereas a vascular surgeon doing it would tend to do clamp and sew. Okay. And is it true in general that an ascending aneurysm is going to be done by a cardiothoracic surgeon and that once you get into the descending portion of the thoracic aorta, then it's kind of transitions over to thoracic surgeons, or is that not always the case? Well, it's generally true. Of course, cardiac surgeons will do anything ascending or in the arch, but a number of cardiac surgeons also do descending thoracic surgery. Okay. It's a mixture. And sometimes... um, Cardiac surgeons and vascular surgeons will work together on uh, descending and thoracoabdominal aneurysms. Okay, and with the circulatory arrest part, basically, if if you need if the aneurysm is involving the area of the arch where the vessels providing blood flow to the brain are coming out of, then you really you you can't uh, clamp that, or else you'll have no flow to the brain. Right? You then need to just do circulatory arrest, keep the brain cold while you repair that part. And you may have had to debranch the arch prior to that and then do circulatory arrest to um, repair. But uh, some of those aneurysms, when the arch is debranched, then can be repaired endovascularly if they are confined to the descending thoracic aorta and they have a good landing zone distally. Okay. So that brings up how can we do these endovascularly? 
And yes. that is also possible um, by placing graphs within the aorta who have fenestrations that then small uh, endografts can be placed in the visceral arteries. Okay. So the endovascular approach is going in through the groin usually, I would assume, and then threading a device up into the aorta and then deploying the graft inside the aorta. Exactly. And this is uh, since probably at least since 2010, this has been the treatment of choice for thoracic aneurysms and aneurysms that are confined to the descending and don't involve the visceral segment. Now, recently, graphs are available uh, to do lower uh, endovascular repair. And when you say the visceral segment, we're talking about below the renal arteries? I'm talking about um, above the renal arteries, celiac, SMA, and both renal arteries. Okay, so so that whole portion. That whole portion. Uh, And these graphs then require an adequate landing zone proximally and distally. And, and, that, and ways to place small endografts into the visceral arteries in the visceral segment. So, for example, if this graft were to cross over the, let's just say, where the um, SMA comes off of the aorta, then it would block blood flow to the SMA. So you would then put a small graft going into the SMA and then into the lumen of the aorta through the gra- through the main graft. Is that right? Exactly right. Okay. So this is endovascular repair, and is that often referred to as TVAR? TVAR is thoracic endovascular repair, and that is uh, really the standard of care for anything that ends above the celiac artery. Okay. And then what if it goes below the, the endovascular repair that, that includes the visceral segment? What, is that an EVAR? No, EVAR is below the visceral segment. Okay. So what do we call so, the whole thing? Well, you'd have to call it an endovascular repair of a thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysm. So there's no, there's no easy... And that, uh, <laughs> no. And, and that, that technology and treatment is really developing. It's, it's not... Uh, quite there yet, but it certainly is developing. However, what we're finding, and this was not a surprise, but what we're finding is that, of course, uh, spinal cord injury is also present when endovascular repair is done, um, and it requires preventive treatments to mitigate that risk. Yes. So just doing these things endovascularly does not mean that there will not be spinal cord injury. Right. And we're definitely going to get to that. Let me ask you, though, before we do, when we're thinking about, you've got a, we're working with a resident, you're going to be doing one of these surgeries, and you're thinking about preoperative considerations that you want them to think about or that you want the patient to have had in terms of workup, what, what kinds of things fall into that? What kind of workup or preoperative preparation does the patient need going in for one of these surgeries? Well, of course, they need to have a stress test because you want to identify the patients who have uh, coronary artery disease because obviously this is a big stress. And if 
patients have coronary artery disease, that needs to be addressed first. Also an echo, because we want to know if they have valvular disease. And then we want to probably rule out anyone who is a pulmonary cripple because the important thing is not getting these patients through the operation. The important thing is getting them out of the hospital. And there are certain people who that's not possible for. So we, we want to know who's at risk for pulmonary failure and how bad that will be. And uh, how do you assess that? Well, you know, I, I assess that clinically because um, there are a number of patients who do not have good pulmonary function. However, they will be able to get out of the ICU, though they may have a slightly longer ventilator course. But obviously, anyone on home oxygen, right, CO2 retainers, these people are difficult to get through this operation and get them home. However, um, smoking cessation and preconditioning of these patients in preparation can make a difference. So we focus on that. Also, it's very difficult to make uh, spinal fluid drainage work in morbidly obese patients. So we've actually had patients that we said, look, we can't do you unless you lose weight um, to have a BMI that's lower. Um, however, those are the main things we assess. Um, I would renal function. We want to know what their creatinine clearance is. A certain percentage of these people are going to be at risk for renal failure. And then I like to have uh, CT scans of the head in anyone who has a history of an old subdural, uh, people that may have um, reason to have uh, frontal lobe shrinking um, from a neurologic process. So those are the main, the main focus is on what risks are likely to be extremely relevant to this operation in a way that will prevent these patients from returning to a reasonable life. Okay, couple questions. So the CT head, what, tell me a little more about that. You're looking for, you said, some frontal atrophy, um, old subdural, and why? What, how will that affect your? your well, plan? we're looking for a loss of brain volume or old subdurals um, because spinal fluid drainage does have a certain risk of intracranial bleeding, uh, which, if the brain is already shrunken, the bridging veins may be extended uh, and draining spinal fluid may result in more likely an intracranial bleed. So in these patients, we would be alerted to be less aggressive with spinal fluid drainage, maybe not drained to such a low pressure. And, and also uh, caution them that this is one risk they have that makes the surgery more dangerous for them. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll talk about that spinal cord drainage in a bit. And then the other question I had was around the stress test. So is this is, you know, for for many, 
not necessarily this surgery. If a patient can go up two flights of steps and we say, okay, they have at least four Mets and we say that's, you know, we don't need a stress test, but you're, is, are you saying this is different for this surgery? You really want the stress test? I do think it's different because the, especially the risk of cardiac strain with um, clamp and sew technique, we just really want to know um, in a more specific way whether they have any areas of ischemia or also old infarcts. Okay. And when you say the clamp and sew technique, this is the surgeon cross-clamping the aorta completely and then sewing below that clamp? Exactly. Without any sorts of less heart by, left heart bypass or other assisted circulation. Okay. And this is going to cause a drastic increase in afterload to the heart, right? Because you're, you're cross-clamping the aorta. Exactly. So a heart, this is a, a lot more stress <laughs> on a heart than, let's say, going up a flight of steps. This is a, a huge increase in afterload yes. that happens all at once. Yeah. Even yeah. normal hearts will feel this strain. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So let's talk about setting up the room. You're working again with this resident and they maybe have never done one. And they say to you, okay, how do you want me to set up the room? What lines, what drips, you know, what do you tell them to get ready? Well, we have a, a vascular uh, rotation for our residents. And so they do have a lot of materials, which was probably what um, Stuart was referring to. <laughs> but, um, well, you have to have uh, preparation to administer a large volume of um, blood blood components during the time when the aorta is open. Um, so we have to have good IV access. We have to have routine monitoring. Um, plus we um, almost always place a PA catheter in these patients. Um, transesophageal echo is very helpful. And then Physioactive drips, we use our fairly standardized epi, nor epi. Um, we use uh, bicarbonate infusion during the visceral ischemia segment of the operation. And so if they do, serve, the residents do several of these during their rotation, um, they get pretty good at setting up for a very big case. We use uh, bron bronchial blockers for one lung anesthesia during these cases so that we do not have to change the endotracheal tube at the end. Okay. And they, they, uh, that is because in order to get to the thoracic aorta, they need one lung to be down? Yes, it provides very good exposure to the surgeons, which also then limits the trauma to that lung. Yep. Okay. So we Great. use that for um, the higher aneurysms, not not for all of the aneurysms. My okay. rule for this is we don't do anything we don't have to do for the anatomy of this aneurysm because it's complicated enough without making it more complicated. Sure. And so you mentioned a, a PA catheter, so you obviously need to place an introducer for that. And then do you do an additional cordis type line for resuscitation? No, I like to use um, peripheral lines whenever possible so that we don't give all of the volume into the right heart, which can be um, a problem in some patients. 
Okay. So you're putting in large, maybe a Rick line or large, you know, 16, 14 gauge peripheral right. IVs in the arms. Large IVs. Presumably not in the legs, right? That's not going to help uh, as much in these cases. We will do that as a last resort. And it is helpful, actually, when reperfusion happens. Because you're flushing some of that. Um... Right, because that's where the re- reperfusion is going. And it is helpful, but we generally don't. So large bore IVs in the, in the preferably in the upper extremities, and then um, a introducer catheter for a PA cat to introduce a, a swan, um, and then uh, a right TEE. Radio, right radio arterial line, because that yep. sometimes is necessary depending on where they're going to clamp. And also it, it works better if it's on the down arm because these patients are sort of lateral with a twisted pelvis to get at the uh, abdominal portion of the aneurysm. Okay, great. Now you've got a TEE probe in. What added value does the SWAN give you that the that you're not getting from your echo? Well, postoperatively, if patients have oliguria, it gives you information about what their cardiac output and index are um, that's useful in deciding about goal-directed therapy. The TEE is very helpful during the surgery, um, but it's not continuously available in the ICU. Right. Okay. So this is really helpful in the post-operative period when you may not have the TEE anymore. Okay. Um, great. All right. So we've it's come up a few times, this idea of, of a risk of spinal cord ischemia. And so some of these patients... Uh, are going to get lumbar drains beforehand. So first, tell me a little bit about, I guess, how do we assess that risk um, and who gets or who might need or who does need a spinal cord drain, um, a spinal drain before they go in for this surgery? So if we're talking about open surgery, um, the tipping point for spinal drains is when the risk of spinal cord injury in the setting of doing all the protective therapies that you can do to mitigate it, when that risk is greater than the risk of serious complications from the drain, those patients would have a lumbar drain before surgery. Okay. Some centers uh, drain to volume parameters, others to pressure parameters. But this is the one thing that has actually been shown in randomized controlled trials to be of benefit uh, in reducing spinal cord injury. And the reasoning here is that you're reducing the pressure in the uh, in and around the spinal cord so that you therefore have less resistance to blood flow and perfusion of the cord. Exactly, because that perfusion uh, decreases during the period of repair, and it doesn't, uh, if we look at animal experiments, it really does not uh, come back to normal for probably 72 hours afterwards as the collateral network to the spinal cord adapts. And so... This was shown early on in animal experiments to be beneficial in the aortic occlusion models, and it was also shown 
uh, mm, around 2000 in uh, randomized control trials in high-risk patients. And so really after that, it became a standard of care for these patients. And the important thing is it has to be done during the surgery. Um, and you have to think about that in terms of spinal cord uh, perfusion pressure. And it has to be also continued in the post-operative period until the collateral network accommodates. Okay. And so these are usually placed the, the day before, the morning of. When do you usually have these, these drains placed? We place them the morning of, except for the patients who are having circulatory arrest, and we place those the day before. And is that so you can start draining earlier or why is no, that? No, it's just because it's such a long, really practically speaking, it's such a long procedure that adding that onto it just makes it longer. Okay. Um, now, you said this, we think about this for the open surgeries, also sometimes for the endovascular surgeries, right? Exactly. Um, so we had a, a robust open surgery program when TVAR became available for thoracic aneurysms, those aneurysms in the descending thoracic aorta. And based on our modeling of our outcomes and others' outcomes that were reported, we understood that TVAR was also going to have spinal cord injury because the anatomic reason for the injury is the interruption of direct arterial inputs to the spinal cord collateral circulation. And so from the beginning, we applied similar um, strategies to reduce spinal cord injury. So if uh, in our institution, if more than 15 centimeters of coverage is going to occur, we do put a lumbar drain. Okay, great. So that's kind of the cutoff. And who does these drains? Is it the anesthesiologist, the surgeon? It's the anesthesiologist. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back, and Dr. Wynn is going to tell us more about spinal drains. So one of, the, one of the benefits of having a smaller group doing this is that everyone becomes more skilled at not only placing the drains but managing them because they do have risk 
And like anything, the more of these you do, the better you get at it. And and it is a difficult therapy. I think in in many ways, it's for the anesthesiologist, it's the most difficult part of this whole enterprise, putting the drain in, making it work. I mean, these are elderly patients. They have osteoarthritis. Some of them are somewhat obese. It's challenging. And then um, not draining too much, but draining enough, because if you drain too much, then you'll have central nervous system complications. So our cardiac anesthesiologists have always done these these cases, regardless if they are lower aneurysms. Um, So we put drains in all types of thoracos. The only exception would be if it's a Crawford 4, which is the visceral segment and below, and they're going to bevel, they're not doing a visceral patch. Those people I don't put drains in. We do all the other uh, therapies that we would do, hypothermia, medications, but those patients often do not get drained. Okay. I would say you, it's important to remember um, we're talking about having good outcomes in the setting of surgeons who know how to do this operation, who, do, who have cross-clamp times that are 60 minutes. Okay. Now, or a little more. Okay. So that's a good, good goal yeah, to no, shoot for. No amount of good anesthesia will make up for average surgery. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. Um, so uh, let me ask you, I, I meant to ask this before. When we think about the things we talked about, the SWAN, the um, TEE, the, uh, all that, is that going to be true, whether it's open or endovascular, that you're going to have those? No, no. We, w- we would generally not do TEE or um, PA catheters in patients having endovascular, particularly if they were just having TVAR limited to the thoracic aorta. Okay. So, uh, but they, but the lumbar drain, they would get if it's more than 15 centimeters that you said. Yeah. Yes, they would. Okay. So let's talk about the intraoperative phase. So now you've got, uh, and again, I guess this is going to look a little different, whether it's open or whether it's endovascular, but um, when you're either way or with, with both, what are you thinking about? What do you want to anticipate? What could go wrong that you want to prepare for in the, in, during the surgery? Well, of course, you're always um, preparing for a large blood loss that will occur in a very limited time. So I would say our patients would, on average, lose um, one blood volume for a complex aneurysm. And that will all occur during the period from when the aorta is cross-clamped and opened until reperfusion. So you have to be prepared to prevent coagulopathy, knowing that they are going to lose a blood volume during a one hour or 75 minutes. So it's important to understand what the surgery is going to comprise, where the clamp will be, when they are going to reperfuse, Um, whether they are doing visceral attachments so that you can anticipate what's going to happen next. So it's also important to have surgeons who are communicative about what they're doing. So that's critical to have an understanding of the surgery 
so that you're not simply reacting to changes in hemodynamics that you were not expecting. Because there will sometimes be that if there's excessive bleeding. Um, second of all, I would also, um, assuming everything is going right from our point of view, we anticipate uh, a heart that becomes stunned when that cross clamp is placed. And most hearts will accommodate uh, over the next 10 minutes if you watch their TEE images. Um, however, some won't. So you have to be prepared to use rational uh, therapies to deal with hemodynamic and cardiac changes. Um, I think that uh, knowing when reperfusion is happening and understanding what you need to do then uh, is critical because with high cross clamps, you can't really volume load during the cross clamp time. You must then just be prepared to replace volume as it's lost and then really replace it when reperfusion of the distal aorta occurs. Um, goals after reperfusion, reestablish um, good cardiac index, uh, appropriate volume, treat any coagulopathy that might be occurring uh, so that the goal at the end would be to have an adequate hemoglobin, um, adequate blood pressure, spinal cord, uh, perfusion, spinal fluid pressure, and a lactate that is decreasing as you go to the ICU. One, one of the biggest problems I find the most challenging, other than those times when we're struggling with spinal fluid drainage not working, um, is if arrhythmias occur. This makes this operation much more difficult. It's, it's not common, but when it does occur, it's mm, hard to manage. I imagine. Okay. And so what about for an endovascular repair? Is there a chance of rupture that you need to be prepared for, or is that very unlikely? Well, in our experience, it's very unlikely, though we have had it. And it has occurred when um, balloon dilatation exceeds the compliance of the aorta at that place where they're dilating because frequently they will dilate a blue and angioplasty, the landing zones of the endograft so that there's a good seal. It's important for a couple reasons to understand what they're doing. And it's important for surgeons to not be too aggressive about that because that's when rupture can occur. Okay. The other thing that can happen with endovascular repair, of course, is they can um, lose control of the femoral access point uh, when they remove the sheaths. That's also, I mean, that can occur with EVAR as well. Um, that's possible, but not common. Okay. So you're obviously, for an open repair, you need blood in the room. You're, as you said, you're anticipating losing an entire blood volume and having to replace it. For an endovascular repair, you obviously want blood ready in case one of these complications happens. Are you, you know, a little less likely? So do you have the blood in the room or you just have it available if needed? How do you approach that? 
I have it available if needed, unless the patient uh, has an anemia pre-existing. Okay. Because it's All unusual right. to have a large blood loss with endovascular. Right. Okay. So you got the patient successfully through the surgery and for open repairs, are you ever extubating in the operating room or are these patients always going intubated to the ICU? Always intubated to the ICU. Okay. Endovascular repairs, I imagine, often getting extubated. If they're not too cold. Okay. Because we do use hypothermia even with endovascular. And so hmm, I've learned the hard way not to extubate those old people when they are still 33. Okay. And so that hypothermia... Even in the absence of circulatory arrest, you're still using hypothermia just to protect the general tissue during the ischemic portion? Well, right. And also, you know, hypothermia has um, beneficial effects on dental nervous system ischemia uh, in animal studies. And in fact, other than spinal fluid drainage, hypothermia is probably the most important thing uh, that was adopted that also mitigated spinal cord injury. If you model large numbers of patients, and we basically, when we started this, knew what uh, paralysis rates would be for the different types of aneurysms without any neuroprotective strategies, because when this began, uh, no one did neuroprotective strategies. So it was possible to model observed to expected ratios for deficit in the different types of aneurysms. And once spinal fluid drainage and hypothermia became generally adopted, regardless of technique of surgery, all OE ratios improved. So we know that's important. And we think that it's even important with TVAR and it's definitely important with more complex endovascular repairs. So for that reason, if a patient has enough risk that we are putting a spinal drain, we would let them become passively cold and probably not extubate them until they go to the ICU. And then they generally would be, as soon as they warmed, we would extubate them there. Okay. So these patients, regardless of whether it's open or endovascular, are going to the ICU, definitely intubated if it's open, maybe intubated if it's endovascular. Um, and then am I, so the, the two big things, kind of potential complications post-op, we'll talk about more about spinal cord ischemia. Obviously, that's a big one. Bleeding, we've, we've kind of touched on. I imagine that continues to be a concern post-op. Are there, is there anything else, other major concerns? Renal failure, I imagine, uh, is a possibility given the ischemic, ischemic time to the kidneys. Right. In the immediate post-operative period, renal failure is an issue, and cardiac issues are also possible. Though generally, I think we've tried to address those before surgery, and they are not... Um, it, in elective patients, we have not that many intraoperative MIs. It's more common in emergent patients. Okay. So now let's really move to spinal cord ischemia. Obviously, something you have done a lot of work on and are very interested in. 
when we're monitoring patients postoperatively, what are we, what would be a sign of developing spinal cord ischemia that we'd want to really look out for to catch it early? Well, we use clinical signs. Uh, they are required and instructed ahead of time that as soon as they're awake enough and strong enough to do a hand grip, we're going to be asking them to lift their legs. And that is done every 45 minutes with a sedation withdrawal. Um, once our patients can do that, we do not drain spinal fluid because that pressure is going to return to what it was on baseline. Um, so that's how we follow. It's just a clinical assessment. And most patients are able to do this the night of surgery. And is it true that um, you should not be reassured by distal strength? In other words, if a patient's toes are strong, you, you're really looking for that, that leg lift, right? The, the you thigh. Want them to lift their knees. Now, some patients are not cooperative. However, when you withdraw sedation, they'll move around. So you can observe that they're lifting their knees. They're moving their knees off the bed. And that's what we're looking for, toe movement. You know, spinal cord injury can present in various ways, as you know. It can be total paralysis. It can be paraparesis. And in fact, as we've gotten better in preventing total paralysis, we've seen more paraparesis and also more delayed weakness. So delayed weakness can then occur anytime, really, in the hospitalization, sometimes related to um, blood pressure is too low, hemoglobin is too low. So we also... Um, caution the patients ahead of time. They're educated that if anything strange happens with their legs or they have any unusual back pain, we need to know about that right away because sometimes we have to uh, put the spinal drain back in, move them to the ICU, but there's only a small window to do that. So most right. patients get this. Um, and that helps to identify a delayed deficit that may occur when the patient is not in the ICU. Right. Okay. So let's say that we're monitoring a patient, whether it's in the ICU or after, um, but let's just start with the ICU and they do develop some leg weakness. They have a hard time or can't lift their leg. And we, we think we caught it the, you know, right away. What can we do? We can start, would we start draining more spinal fluid? We would, and we would probably drain to a lower pressure. Uh, we would also uh, raise their mean arterial pressure so that the differential for spinal cord perfusion is more favorable. We would be sure their hemoglobin was adequate. Um, and then in our institution, we would give mannitol at that time, 12.5 grams. Uh, we may repeat a dose of steroids, but we would then extend the period of spinal fluid drainage. And in this, in this setting, it's very important to have reliable uh, observation of the patient's strength. So we would do all of those things before we got an MRI of the spinal cord, because doing that first, of course, delays everything else. Right. We, would, we would presume in this setting that it was ischemia, not that it was an, a spinal epidural 
hematoma. Right. So, and yeah, great. And so, um, talk to me about the mannitol. What is that uh, accomplishing? Well, it's probably theoretically, we imagine it's a free radical scavenger. And it's a fairly benign treatment. It doesn't have risk. So even if it's not doing anything, it's probably not deleterious. Though in large doses, <laughs> we found that we had more blood in the spinal fluid, probably because we shrunk the brain and the bridging veins were more um, stretched. Okay. So what kind of dose are you giving? Just 12.5 grams. Okay. Single bolus dose. Okay. What about uh, naloxone infusions? Are you using those at all? Yes, we do use those. And um, theoretically, um, based on animal studies, we think that that uh, naloxone reduces excitatory neurotransmitters that are released during ischemia. Um, so we use that intraoperatively, uh, and we continue it 48 hours postoperatively. As we continue, um, you know, paying attention, close attention to mean arterial pressure postoperatively as well, because we believe, based on animal studies again, that the collateral network gradually accommodates after direct arterial inputs have been reduced, but it takes 48 to 72 hours for that to happen. So mannitol, Narcan, um, making sure the hemoglobin, if you had signs of ischemia, would you push the hemoglobin up to what level? 10. 10. And what yeah. about the MAP? Well, the MAP, we would definitely have it to be 95 or 100. And if we're having trouble reducing spinal fluid pressure, we may increase it more than that. Um, animal studies show us that... Uh, the mean arterial pressure, if you measure a stump pressure in the collateral network, it's about three-quarters of the systemic map. So you have to take that into consideration when you're thinking about spinal cord perfusion pressure. Okay. So, so you can really push it up high. We can, and we do sometimes. And then if we have a patient that has a delayed deficit and we have reinstituted spinal fluid drainage, um, we go through a period, if there's been improvement neurologically, we go through a period where we would allow the spinal fluid pressure to rise a little bit before we would reduce the map. Yeah. So patients who awaken with a dense paralysis, it, these are not patients you can rescue. Sure. Patients who are paraparetic upon awakening, uh, you can um, make some improvement with continuously being aggressive with increasing MAP and reducing spinal fluid pressure. Okay. 
And the same with the delayed onset of some weakness. Same with delayed, exactly. And and delayed usually does not present as a dense paralysis unless the person has a sudden, mm, profound hypotensive event. Sure. And then when when we think about the Narcan infusion, um, do you have do you run into problems with pain control, or is it a low enough dose that the opiates are still going to have some effect? It's a low enough dose that the opiates will still have some effect. When we started using that, we chose the lowest dose that might result in some uh, reversal of respiratory depression. Uh, so it's really quite low. Okay. And then you mentioned you might redose the steroids, which implies that you have dosed it already. So do, do all your patients get a dose of steroids? We do, yes. And again, that's not proven in any kinds of clinical trials in patients, but it does have some benefit um, in animal studies. And are you dosing it in, in the OR or postoperatively? OR and reperfusion. Okay. And what dose? We'll give 30 milligrams per kilo up to two grams. Um, and all of these things are sort of standardized here. Okay. And that's solumedrol or what are you using? Oh, uh, yeah. Methylprednisolone. Okay. So 30 megs per keg up to two grams of methylprednisolone. Okay. So big dose. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. In the beginning. Yeah. Okay. And then would you redose that same dose in a patient who develops ischemia uh, postoperatively? Yes, we would. Okay. We would. Um, all right. So let me ask you this. This has been going on for a while. Has the risk of spinal cord ischemia in these surgeries been reduced from 1990 to now? And uh, if so, how much and how was it accomplished? Well, when Stanley Crawford was doing these, and there was no... Uh, neuroprotective interventions, the risk of paralysis in the most extensive aneurysms, uh, atherosclerotic aneurysms, done electively, was 25%. Um, patients with connective tissue aneurysms or those done emergency, um, emergently, or patients with aneurysms from dissection, um, it was higher. So that is a substantial number of patients um, whose life was ruined and shortened by this treatment. Um, over the next 20 years, the risk of spinal cord injury, and this would include paralysis, paraparesis, all kinds of injury, is about in those comparable aneurysms for atherosclerotic etiology, five to 6% in the best centers. So it has been reduced significantly. Yeah. And correspondingly in other, that would be a type two aneurysm involving all of the descending thoracic and the abdominal aorta. Type one, which basically ends right around the celiac, uh, risk has been reduced from you know, 10% to probably 4 3%. Very impressive. Um, and how? It, was it just with all the techniques we've talked about and both well, surgical and, and anesthesia? Uh, it was from taking uh, experimentally validated therapies uh, and applying them 
and then modeling the results to see what was actually improving uh, OE ratios for deficit. And in fact, um, if you model large numbers of patients where physiologic strategies are applied, uh, we think that the technique of surgery itself, as long as physiologic protections that um, deal with ischemia are used, the technique is not as important as the strategies to mitigate the reasons for injury. And so this means that the anesthesia is very important. The anesthesia and the post-operative management. Yeah. Now, this is all within the context of uh, having good surgery, not really long cross-clamp times, manageable blood loss, and excellent ICU care post-operatively. But all centers that have used spinal fluid drainage, hypothermia, have reduced paralysis and other less severe spinal cord injury. Well, that's fabulous. What a great, from 25% to five is really impressive. When we think about what's actually causing spinal cord ischemia, has the paradigm for explaining that changed over time? Well, it has because originally um, everyone asked why is paralysis occurring in 25% of the most complex aneurysms? And obviously, some of those intercostal arteries, the segmental arteries, were being interrupted by the cross-clamp and then by the repair. So surgeons felt that um, reattaching the intercostal arteries would prevent this. However, it didn't. But that was the paradigm for the longest time. The question really that was more important is, and, and the answers came from this question, is why are 75% of the patients not paralyzed? Right. Because they were also having the um, intercostal arteries, the segmental arteries interrupted just the same. So... That's something I struggled with for years. And the answer was already suggested in the animal literature. There had been proposed a collateral network uh, that supplied the spinal cord circulation. It wasn't just the artery of the Damkowitz. However, it took a long time for that to be demonstrated. But it, intuitively, to me, it was... Um, obvious that if there was a collateral network, there had to be a pressure that was high enough to perfuse the spinal cord during that period so that the ischemia would not be so profound that it progressed to infarction. So the paradigm now has ch changed such that although the cause of this injury is anatomic, it's the interruption of the arteries that supplement the collateral network, the prevention is largely physiologic by focusing on reducing ischemia as much as you can during that period of vulnerability. Um, and the collateral network is the reason 
that uh, the spinal cord has a, a lot of resilience, um, being a plexus network. So if inputs from one place reduce, inputs from another place can increase as long as you're focusing on central perfusion. Yep. That makes so a lot of sense. So the paradigm is very different now. Um, and that has made um, a big difference in everyone's thinking, the things they're focusing on. And it's also made it obvious how important anesthesiologists are in this area. Absolutely. Well, we've covered so much great stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Mimi. Is there anything um, that we didn't get to that you think we should mention before we move on? No, I think that's most of what I have to say. Great. Well, let's move to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Is there something you'd recommend that the audience check out for fun, for their own uh, enjoyment? Oh, well, if you're readers, I would recommend Abraham Verghese books. It particularly has a new one now that's just come out. I enjoy reading his books very much. Um, a Respite from Work. Yes. He's a fabulous writer. I just read The Song of the Cell, um, the newest one, which was really, really great. So thank great you so much. Yes, great recommendation. I, um, I'll also just mention that um, I'm pretty sure Abraham Verghese is going to be the keynote speaker at the ASA conference in San Francisco uh, oh. coming up this year. So. Cool. Wonderful. Yes, that'll be fun. Um, well, my recommendation is a, uh, a a documentary show on Netflix that I just finished called Full Swing. And if you're a golf fan, or even if you're not, you really don't have to know much about golf. But this is like Drive to Survive, the one they did about the um, Formula One. This is about um, the PGA Tour, about professional golf. And they it's really well done. They follow... Uh, each episode, they kind of follow a couple different professional golfers as they go through some really exciting tournaments. And, and you learn about uh, what the PGA Tour is like, what the life of a professional golfer is like, the ups and the downs. And uh, I really think you could enjoy it even if you you don't know much about golf. But certainly, if you like golf, it's a fabulous documentary. So that's my recommendation. Check it out. Mimi, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Hopefully, you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. 
That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.